Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, talks to Jean-Paul Yeagers, Head of Asset Allocation, and Mike Haslam, Investment Funds Director, about the continual change investors have to cope with and get ahead of, and how this affects investment decisions. Hello, welcome to Word on the Street. Uh, Today, I'm joined by Jean-Paul Yeagers, our Head of Asset Allocation, and Mike Haslam, who runs our Investment Funds team. So let's start with you, JP. It's been a reasonably quiet week, hasn't it? I mean, stock markets haven't really made much news or headway. Tell us a little bit about what's been going on. Hello, Nikki. Yes, if, if we look at markets, then we've had the FOMC this week, uh, who left interest rates unchanged, but suggested interest rates could stay lower for a little bit longer. Uh, and that was largely as expected, because it was not really a big market mover. But if we zoom a little bit out and just look a little bit wider than just this week, we actually see the stock markets have been up quite significant. So we've had a very significant run in, in stock markets. And they're up about 40% mark since the bottom, where on some gauges we think there's a lot of optimism now reflected in asset prices. For example, if we lose at our, you look at our in-house sentiment gauges, we see that it flags a level of optimism that is the highest since we've, we have the data sets. So the highest level since at least 1995, which is quite staggering. Because in some extent, the bar for investor disappointment has been lowered, in our opinion. Yeah. So, so you mentioned there about up 40% since the bottom. Obviously, there was a, there was a significant drop earlier in the year. But, but one thing I did sort of read about this week, clearly, the US stock market now is, is as we stand today, somewhat positive year to date. Um, so if you'd invested at the beginning of, of January, you'd actually have made a positive return, which which is a bit surprising given everything we've been through and are still going through in many ways. I, I gather one in every seven people in the US is out of a job. Um, vast parts of the country are still in shutdown. Yet stock markets seem to have rocketed back. How, how is that? What's driving that, JP? Yeah, that, that's quite staggering. And that, that, that's, that makes our, our life as investors uh, quite a challenge at times. So, well, we all know that markets don't live in the here and now, uh, but anticipate where we will be in, say, six months' time. Given the positive developments we've seen in the containment of the virus and governments starting to relax some of the lockdown measures, where at the same time, we also have seen governments announce massive plans. So, for example, here in the UK, the help to workers and businesses is really unprecedented in size. But at the same time, we also see central banks trying to cushion the economic blow by lowering interest rates. And also here in the UK, we see that the debate has started whether the Bank of England could apply negative interest rates. It just tells you that, if, yeah, and that's a big if at the moment, if economies recover and we get some sense of a new normality, Investors are very keen to participate in this recovery. Uh, however, as just mentioned, we feel expectations are already quite elevated in asset prices at the moment, and there is potential for investor disappointment, as there are still so many things that need to be worked out uh, from here. The speed of these developments is it's quite astonishing. So some, sometime, something I hear talk Mike a lot about, and I'm sure we will touch on that later in this podcast, is just the speed of change for investors. Yeah, and... I mean, a lot of what you're talking about there is is somewhat counter to the economic theory I studied at university, you know, our professional exams earlier in, in my career, you know, 
sort of 25 years plus now. Um, but have things really changed that much? Well, that, that, that's very fascinating. So a lot of things you've been taught in university, a lot of the theory, the theoretical foundations have been there for quite a while. Although we mm. see that the applications and policies are continually evolving. Often we take it for granted that things have been as they are right now, but actually a lot of developments have come up quite recently. So just as one example, that central banks look at inflation, so the so-called inflation targets, is something that was developed in the late 90s. The fact that when GDP contracts, that we see vigorous responses from both government and central banks, um, at, at uni you got thought that in the late expansion, inflation would rise. That's not something we've seen this time around. At uni, you got thought that financial asset price models can't cope with negative interest rates. You can't apply the models if you put in negative interest rates. But then you've been told that's not a problem because it's not intuitive. Well, until now. Just yes, I, I guess as in most fields, we see that for macro investors, there is a continual learning curve on how policy is evolving and something something we need to reflect on before we make any investments on behalf of our clients. And just, just now, we, by we, macro uh, investors, um, sorry, JP, just, just for a little bit of context for, for some of our listen, listeners, when you say macro investors, are you meaning you know, those looking at high-level asset allocation as opposed to individuals who stop picking? Exactly. And on a, on a very high level, there are so many moving parts. So if we think about whether we think stock markets will go up, so not talking about an individual company, but there are so many things we need to take into account. It's not just the, the, the profits. It's not just how the economy is doing. It's interest rates. And those kind of longer-term trends, yeah, that's what, what I refer to when I think about macroeconomics. But just, just now, we have seen one of the sharpest and fastest drops in financial markets. And that was followed by a 40% plus recovery in a very short space of time. So normally, previously, we have seen that if you get a, a shock to the economy, it would take months for financial markets to fully absorb and quite some time to recover from that. But now this all happened in a space of just a few months. Because if, for example, investor would have been on a sabbatical leave, he or she would have completely missed it. <laughs> Although some might say they'd be lucky to, <laughs> to, to have missed the excitement we've lived through or, or are living through. Um, but, but that's really fascinating. So, I mean, does, does this make everything more efficient? Uh, are things just being done much more quickly in that sense? Well, yeah, we know that information is disseminated much more quickly than dec decades ago, uh, and it's much more widely disseminated. And on top of that, we've seen the financial industry has grown massively in recent decades. That said, it doesn't make it necessarily much more efficient. Recently, I read a great book by a fellow Dutchman uh, historian called uh, Rodger Brechtman, uh, titled Utopia for the Realist, where he makes, which makes a great read, by the way, where he makes a very interesting point that, for example, if we look at GDP, he claims it's one of the worst statistics out there. Although the developer of that of that number, Simon Kuzny, won the Nobel Prize with it. You're you're giving Will a run for his money on on random uh, book mentions, <laughs> but you mentioned <laughs> GDP there. I mean, again, just for for clarity purposes, I know I know we we hear it mentioned on the news, so everyday investors will hear the term GDP, but in, in plain language, what, what do we actually mean? What, what is GDP? Well, in, in very short, it's just the sum of all the goods and services that are being produced in a country. Okay, that's that's clear. Thank you. And and, and, and the interesting bit is that the, this this kind of statistic that was has been evolved over, over, over time was mainly developed during the Second World War. 
So if you would crudely explain it, that was the time when Hitler and Churchill wanted to know how many tanks and ammunition was being produced. It was easy to measure the production of something and you could capture it into one statistic. However, there are a lot of weaknesses with a single lens to measure an economy in, in this statistic. And, and why is that, JP? Uh, well, f- for example, there's just a lot of change in techni- technological development. So there are a lot of things that are being overlooked here as well. So take, for example, a lot of things being free online. So we get nowadays you get a free dictionary or an app. You get language courses. Previously, the courses or the dictionary was part of GDP. It was part of a service or a good that was being produced. Now it's free. It essentially lowers GDP. Or take now example uh, Zoom and Skype that's everyone now being used to in, in, in lockdown period. Again, that's free. So that costs telecom companies uh, a fortune. So the quality of growth is not being measured. So for example, societal happiness or can we work shorter hours? Just to some extent, it's great to see all the development and change. But equally at times, it's sometimes astonishing to see how much attention a single statistic like GDP or inflation gets those resulting in efforts like quantitative easing. Absolutely. And what can governments really do? I mean, what are the boundaries of of capitalism being shaped by this experience that we're going through, the the big changes you just mentioned, use of Zoom, other technologies rather than getting together, spending money on train tickets, etc.? How, how is that being shaped by, by the pandemic? Well, at, at the moment, there are vast developments in, in, in policy and, and changes. Take, for example, central banks that now start buying high-yield bonds, so where essentially financial gains are concentrated to the owners of the assets, while at the same time losses are being socialized. Uh, governments are in charge of wealth distribution, um, and, and there is some signs that economists are slowly, slowly more and more looking into different options or to look for fair solutions. Uh, potentially via taxes or different forms of income distribution. Again, this is a very fascinating topic and, and, and something I picked up from, from the book I just mentioned from Rutger Brechtman as well, is that if you look at history, economists have, for long, have long thought about if a society progresses, that in the end, in utopia, that people would be working less, that things would get more mm-hmm. efficient. But actually, since the 80s, it has been the opposite. On average, we see both adults in a household working and we were working more. And those, those things are quite fascinating. And, and yeah, to put it in the big picture, long-term developments, it's, it's very interesting to think of how that impacts our actual investments. Interesting. That sounds like perhaps a, uh, a future topic uh, to, to dive into a little bit more, perhaps a, a, a sort of tennis game of theories that you and Will can have um, with, with us as your audience. <laughs> So, Mike, let me bring you in on this. I guess fund managers as well, you know, the people that you speak to every day, they're having to adapt as well, aren't they? Hi, Nikki. Um, Yeah, thanks for inviting me back on this call, by the way. Fascinating stuff there from um, JP and uh, not just the random book club. Uh, But yeah, um, (laughs) so do fund managers adapt? Well, yes, they do all the time. So on one side, you've got sort of, you know, specific disruption within markets. So things like when the UK supermarket industry was disrupted when Aldi and Lidl came in, um, or maybe how Amazon has disrupted traditional retail. And fund managers have to go back to basics and completely start again with with what are essentially brand new forces. But what JP is talking about here has, has had a massive impact. For example, just over the last three years, the European Central Bank has spent over 3 trillion euros on buying bonds. 
So how does that affect the market that a bond fund manager operates? I'll tell you how. It's a massive impact. And they didn't teach you about bond purchasing programs um, at Fund Manager College, wherever that was. <laughs> and you worked in the fund manager industry yourself, didn't you, before joining Barclays? So has it been all changed since then? Yeah, you bet. Um, oh, and by the way, no cheap jokes there about my age, please, uh, about, the introduction of, <laughs> about the introduction of computers and electricity. But things like, you know, th- things like high-frequency trading, funds run by computers and algorithms, there's been lots and lots of change. But one of the biggest changes, and we're still seeing this developer developing at the moment, maybe it's something we talk about, is, is the development of ESG investing, um, about ethical or, yeah, as it was known, ethical investing. Yeah, and, and that kind of thing, you know, avoiding buying the sort of sin stocks, tobacco, defence, that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Or at least that's what it used to be. So what used to be called ethical investment meant purely not buying the stuff that you don't like. So typically that would mean... Uh, not buying shares in tobacco companies, mining, you know, oil, fossil fuels, defence, etc. Um, you just ignore it, pretend it's not there, and invest in the rest of the market. But is that right? You know, should you be doing that, just ignoring it? I mean, after all, BP, for example, BP is one of the world's largest investors in solar panel. That's a good thing, isn't it? So if you're running um, a a uh, you know an ethical green energy fund, should you therefore be buying BP shares? Maybe. I get that. It's, I mean, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Do you simply avoid the companies or, or do you invest in, in what could possibly be part of the solution? And it's moved on even further of late, hasn't it, Mike? Yeah, absolutely. And um, here's, a, here's a really good example. So I was talking to a fund manager recently. His name is Hamish Chamberlain, and he runs the Janice Henderson Global Sustainable Equity Fund. Now, like all fund managers, He's looking for companies that are good investments, so those companies with potential for their share prices to go up faster than the market, i.e., um, well, basically to outperform. That's what fund managers do. But yeah. here's the interesting part. For every single company he looks to invest in, he asks himself one simple question. And the question is, is the world a better place because of this company? Now, think about that question. Is the world a better place because of this company? That's interesting, isn't it? It's a different. It's a different stance. Yeah. So, so, but what does that actually mean? What does that lead him to do differently? Okay. Um, let me give you an example. Um, Nintendo. We've we've all heard of them. Nintendo. Mm-hmm. Yep. Even uh, me. Excellent. Um, their, <laughs> their, their main business is video games, so entertainment. But it's different to what you think about maybe a video game company. So, in my eyes, you know, a typical image is of a you know a teenager in his dark bedroom playing games like Grand Theft Auto or Call of Duty for hours and hours on end against a person that they met on the internet. But Nintendo is quite different. It's it's very family-orientated. It's a lot more social. Um, many of the games you play together, usually in the same room, things like karaoke games, sports games. Uh, there's even that one, um, the one where you wander around town looking for those little creature things uh, behind park benches. Sorry, it sounds a bit random there. Um, Pope. <laughs> Pokemon Go, that's the one. Oh, Pokemon Go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sure you've done it. I've done it with my children. Um, so, you know, Nintendo games are quite different. They're fun. And their games can help in education as well. So the company's not going to change the world. It's not about wind farms and solar panels. But you think about it. Is the world a better place because of this company? I kind of think so. It's a slightly better place, isn't it? When you look at it against what you typically think is a video games. I guess so, yeah. I mean... It- and Nintendo is is it a is it a you know 
a good a good business to invest in after all you know he's trying to make money for investors right yeah absolutely um uh, which is the um, um uh, the key tenant of the uh, of the entire fund now nintendo has been a good investment it shares uh, the share price has more than doubled over the last five years and the 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 breadth of their product is extraordinary so some of the names have been around for years even when i was a child donkey kong mario uh, in super mario etc and they'll be around for a long time yet. Now, this is interesting, okay? Uh, when the Japanese, do you remember when Boris introduced the London Olympics at the 2018 and he was there dangling away on the, uh, on the uh, zip wire? Now, when, yeah. the, when, when the Japanese prime minister did it, uh, did the same at the 2016 Summer Olympics Games, did the closing ceremony in Rio, and he was there to introduce the next games, which were supposed to be in Tokyo this year. And he was dressed up as Super Mario. Come on, what a brand. The Japanese Prime Minister dressed up as a Nintendo game character to represent Japan. Phenomenal. Yeah, fascinating. So I see what you mean by the change in, in what we take as ethical investing these days. Yeah, absolutely. And if you've got time, maybe maybe, maybe for one more um, quick example. Um, mm-hmm. Sure. A second company, Shimano. Okay, Shimano, it's, it's another Japanese company. And for those that know their bikes, they will know the name Shimano. So 70% of all bikes sold have Shimano components on them. So mainly the brakes and the gears, that's a massive share. That's a massive market share. And it's not just constrained to traditional bikes. You've also got electric bikes as well. And when you think about electric vehicles, you automatically think about electric cars. But the most success, interestingly, the most successful form of electric transport is electric bikes. It's a phenomenally strong growth story, growing much, much quicker than electric cars. But don't forget the uh, the uh, traditional bikes as well. This is a massive growth story, especially at the moment. More and more people today are buying bikes today than ever before, partly for exercise, but also as well. People are now looking, you, you know, you look around your friends, family, colleagues, looking at some kind of alternative to using public transport transport during the current um, COVID-19 um, 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 lockdown environment. In fact, there was, a, there was an article in The Guardian a few weeks ago, uh, which was entitled... Bicycles are the new toilet paper, basically, <laughs> which is basically bike, bike shops can't keep up with demands. Yeah. You know, I, you know I, I challenge you, go out and find one. So it doesn't matter which company is selling the most bikes because there's a 70% chance they'll have Shimano components on them. So, but it comes back to the question, is the world a better place because of this company? I think so. More people are using bikes. That's, uh, that's kind of good to me, isn't it? Yeah, sounds sounds very much like it although it sounds like hard work i like your idea of the e-bikes but it's it's really changed a lot since the old older days of ethical as you said you know gone are the days where it's just avoiding particular stocks so looks looks like we might need to rewrite the textbook somewhat um yeah and, and think yeah. a bit broader absolutely you've got to stop think about thinking about ethical investing as just avoiding tobacco companies and buying wind farms. This is becoming a lot more mainstream. Somebody like Hamish is a very interesting person to listen to and look at his approach. But it, this is this is becoming the norm, not the exception. And it has changed how we look at fund managers. Very good. And and listen, just I mean, I'm I'm I hope all our listeners will will by now uh, know this and understand it. But you mentioned a couple of stocks there, Nintendo and uh, Shimano. They weren't recommendations. You were you were referring back to certainly the performance of Nintendo in the past doesn't necessarily mean that that will continue. So 
you know, people people should either do their own their own research or or leave it to the professionals through, uh, you know, through fund managers or via via managed portfolios. So with that, just just for me to say thank you so much, Mike. That was really insightful. Thank you, JP. Thanks for the uh, for the economics lesson, um, and we look forward to uh, talking to our listeners again in a week or so. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.